This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, everybody. We want to let you know that we are doing our traditional Pacific Northwest swing for our live show next year. In fact, the end of January next year, very early next year. And we're starting out in Seattle, Washington on January 24th at the Paramount Theater. It's huge. That's right. And then on to Portland on January 25th at Revolution Hall, the place we always are. It's kind of our home away from home in Portland. And then we're going to wrap it all up at the thing that started the Pacific Northwest tour in the first place all those years back, SF Sketchfest. We'll be at the Sydney Goldstein Theater on Friday, January 26th. Right, Chuck? That's right. And remember, you can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com, click on tours in order to get to the correct ticket link or go to the venue page only. Do not go to scalper sites. That's right. And we'll see you guys in January. Okay? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's here too. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Uh, I believe a do-do-do-do is in order. Why? Because we're debuting a brand new writer. Oh, yeah. Great idea, Chuck. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Welcome aboard, Allison Miller. Allison uh, came to us. This is by way of Livia, right, as a recommendation. Yep. We said, Livia, you're great. You know any other great writers? She said, actually, I got one I can recommend. And here we are. Yeah. And Allison Miller uh, did a uh, how it works here is we do like sort of a test article. And mm-hmm. this is that test article. So it obviously worked. And Allison is a historian and researcher and just did a fantastic job. So welcome welcome to the fam, Allison. Welcome, Allison. Here, I'll coordinate you, too. Do-do-do-do! Yeah, you do it better than me, so I was hoping you would chime in. I just put some enthusiasm in. I think that's the difference. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about the OED today, the Oxford English Dictionary. And I have to say, Allison knocked this one out of the park. I get the impression that she may or may not have read significant portions of the OED in her lifetime. Yeah, I think Allison is smart. So um, and she kind of starts off by talking about different kinds of dictionaries, which is significant because the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, um, is a specific kind of dictionary. It's not a regular average Joe, you know, workaday dictionary mm-hmm. like some other dictionaries. The Oxford English Dictionary is a, is a historical dictionary. So it not only tells you the definition of the word, they, there may even be multiple definitions, by the way. I don't know if you've ever looked at a dictionary before, but sometimes <laughs> one word can have more than one definition. It's nuts, That's right? That's what I've heard. Uh-huh. The OED says, and by the way, here's where that word came from. 
And here's examples of its first use to its probably most recent use or one of its most recent uses. So you can see how this specific word in the English language evolved over time. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. It's it's pretty ambitious. It is. And historical dictionaries, they don't uh, they don't say like, well, that that meaning is not something that people use it for anymore. Like macaroni, whatever the heck they meant in that song. The Yankee Doodle, the indie one? Yeah. I took that as a reference to pot. <laughs> but my point is, they don't say like, well, let's get rid of that old that old definition. Like the whole idea for the OED is that the English language is alive. And so the OED is alive. And uh, we're going to we're going to leave it in there and go forward in time. But if you if you want to look up these old usages and these old meanings, it's all right there for you in this massive, massive dictionary that uh, whose aim was to include every word in the English language and every usage of that word up until now. Starting in 1150 CE. Yeah, as far as the words go. They didn't start the dictionary then, but they went back to Middle English to get uh, the what we now have as a third edition, uh, more than 600,000 entries of which we have 850,000 definitions. See? Three million of those quotations, which is amazing. And uh, although I think we're locked in with the with the beginning and the end, because uh, the first word is A, there's no way you can get before that in line. No. And the last word is Ziziva, and there's no way that someone could create a word that is after Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-V-A. It would have to be Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. Or ZZ Top. I'm surprised they didn't mention ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah, and don't talk to me about cartoon sleep bubbles. So I think we're locked in it uh, as, actually, Allison has a great title for this. The OED colon A to Zizia. I'm sorry, Ziziva. I already messed it up. <laughs> well, it's a tough word. Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-V-A. It's fun yeah. to spell out loud because you say it like that with some oomph. But yeah. um, it's a tough word to, to say. Did you define it? Uh, no, go ahead. It's a weevil. Yeah. And it always was. <laughs> so one thing about the OED, you might say, well, like, wow, that's a lot of information packed into one tome. You'd be right. Um, if you don't know much about the Oxford English Dictionary, you may at least have the idea that it's enormous, that it's way bigger than your average dictionary, because those 600,000 entries with 850,000 definitions and 3 million quotations, when you put them all together, it takes up a lot of space. In fact, I, I, by my estimate, it takes up something like an eighth of the entire Internet. Right. <laughs> uh, should we read some of this, uh, these fast stats? Oh, yeah, let's do that. So I believe this is the first volume. The first, yeah, the whole first edition, I think. Yeah, the whole first edition. So this isn't even the current edition. Uh, this is the one that was finished up in 1928. Um at the time, it had 415,000 words, half a million definitions, 1.8 million quotations. Uh, but this is the part I wanted to get to. 178 miles of type, 50 million words, four feet of shelf space, mm -hmm. and uh, 10 or 20 half volumes. So, you know, that, that uh, Encyclopedia Britannica set you grew up with in your hallway 
that's basically what this dictionary's first edition looked like. Yeah, and back in 1930, 1928, I guess, when it came out, um, you paid about today's equivalent of 3,360 pounds sterling for a dictionary. Yeah. About four grand in uh, U.S. dollars today. And according Roughly. to the Bank of England, that was equal to 228 days wages for a skilled worker in 1930. Imagine spending most of your year's salary on a dictionary. Yeah, I think the point has got to be that very, like you had to be a very well-heeled person trying to impress other people by owning a copy of this thing back then, right? Yeah, or a library. Well, exactly. So, yeah, this was that was the first edition. It's gotten even bigger, as we've seen over time. And so now, it finally, the Internet was born, I think, to house the, the third edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is where we're at now. And um, one thing that they do, uh, which is pretty sharp, as the dictionary comes out, new words are being added to it all the time. They're mm-hmm. probably finding less and less old words that they hadn't included. But, you know, like you said, the English language is living. So it's it's expanding and um, contracting and adding new words to it all the time. So by the time those things go to press and that last volume of the edition comes out, there's words that are left over that are just constantly being added. So I think on a quarterly basis, they release um, uh, supplements, essentially, that have mm-hmm. new words that came out or were coined since the volume that contained that letter was published in the latest edition. That's right. And we'll we'll get to how those supplements figured in back then and what they do with those today. But the other really unique thing about the OED is that it is a, and always has been from the very, very beginning, a crowdsourced work. Yeah. Uh, right from the beginning, the editors who were, we're going to talk about the original editors, uh, editors here in a minute, they said, hey, public, we need help. Uh, so if you're into this, you've got a little time. If you like to read, if you're a linguist, you're into words, if you love language, go back to Chaucer, start reading and find these words that we're looking for. Find usages of these words to send into us uh, by hand on, uh, they call it a slip, a little four by six sheet of paper mm-hmm. and mail it into us. And you could very well have a, a hand in creating the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah. Pretty cool. And they got a really great response to it, and I think still do today. Oh, for sure. But that also explains why you have, you know, quotes from Chaucer and Shakespeare, and also, uh, as Allison points out, quotes from like a social media post Mm -hmm. as a a usage example of a word. Yeah, she also used an example that came from the most recent quarterly update from September 2023. Porch Pirate appears in there. And so it's a really good illustration of what the OED does. Um, They explain that it's someone who steals packages from doorsteps. Everybody knows that. But did you know (laughs) that it first came about um, from a news segment on KFOR from Oklahoma City's, uh, one of their local uh, broadcasting stations? Yeah. So they'll they'll have that. Wait, you you did know that? No. Well, no. I said they would have that. I got you. As like the example or whatever. Uh, and then if you want to dig deeper and just say, well, what about this word porch? Mm-hmm. Then they'll take you back to the 1300s with the definition of porch and then examples of these what they call senses. Uh, like that's when a uh, 
not a not a tense. It's a sense. It's like how the word is used, basically. Yeah, and it might not be used that way anymore necessarily. Yeah, but they they will have all of them listed, and you can see sort of the evolution of not only the word porch, but when you eventually get to something like porch pirate. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty neat stuff. Like that's what they do, and they've been doing this for a uh, hundred something years since I think the first. The first volume of the first edition came out in, I think, 1884, right? Yeah, and those supplements uh, you were talking about, I promise to kind of explain how they do things now. They were, they were for many, many years, they were released um, just like, hey, here's this extra thing. Mm-hmm. But it created a problem if you're like, well, wait a minute. Now I have to look up a word in two different places if it has a more modern usage. Right. And so eventually they started combining them. Uh, I think they finally... Did that in what 1989, where the supplements were actually worked into the the main edition. Yeah, just the first edition. Yeah, so they finished that in 1989. A couple of years before that, they had finally put it on a CD-ROM, and then, like you said, the it only exists today. Well, I mean, you can get copies, but they're not releasing. I don't think print editions any longer. It's just a online subscription type thing now. Yeah, and usually, I mean, it's pay, right? So yeah, subscription. So usually, you can log in through your library. Pretty neat. They're also in the midst of putting out a third edition, so look for that in the next century. That's right. Um, I say we take a little break, Charles, and then we'll come back and talk about the history of the OED, how we got here. Let's do it. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. So um, the OED is not the first English dictionary um, ever. In fact, the first one ever was from 1604. It's called The Table Alphabetical of Hard Usual English Words by Robert Caudry. Um, and he basically just put this together to help people, um, I guess, explain themselves in English better. Uh, he thought it was, I think, words that were commonly used, but not necessarily commonly understood. So that was the first one. Um, but the, the, I guess the OED really traces its um, spiritual roots to a more recent phenomenon that the Brothers Grimm had started, which was essentially a dictionary of a language in order to show the history of that language, ostensibly in order to prove how great that language actually was. Yeah. Uh, we shout out to a couple of great episodes we did many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, one on the Brothers Grimm. And was there one on the just the fairy tales? Yes. They and were it like a two-parter. A, it was a two-parter, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a good series. So go back and listen to that. But Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm mm-hmm. uh, did what you said. They were like, hey— we want to create a German dictionary uh, from Martin Luther on. Uh, it would eventually, they died before it came out, but it was called, I believe, the the first uh, fascicle. And the fascicle is just the first part, basically, like, hey, we finished A through J or whatever. Right. Uh, I think the first fascicle came out when they were alive, but of the uh, Deutsches Wörterbuch. Wörterbuch. <laughs> I love it. And uh, I believe they they died in the, the late uh, 1859 for Wilhelm in 1863, and it finally came out in 1961 in full. So they weren't even close. Uh, and she points out, Allison, that Jacob died at the F's. Uh, he was working on the word fruit or de frucht. Yeah, I want to so say were, it. That was pretty pretty good. Oh, you want to say it? I want to say it too. Deutsches Wörterbuch, which means <laughs> literally German word book, right? Yeah, it's more like Buch. Deutsches Wörterbuch. Wörterbuch, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I said it way better in my head. I think I tried too hard. That's all right. So like I was saying, behind the the Grimm's whole initiative is not just like documenting definitions for German words. They wanted to trace the history of the German language because they suspected that far in the distant past, all of these disparate groups of people who are now members of separate nations were all members of the same Germanic speaking tribe uh-huh. and that this had been like a glorious, amazing civilization that was now fractured. And maybe if we understand it a little better, it can come back together and dare I say, take over the world. Yeah. It's like e- easy brothers, Grimm. Yeah. They had a good idea. <laughs> I, see where, I see where this is headed. <laughs> it got a little perverted along the way, although it may have been a bad idea from the beginning, you know? 
Yeah, this this does link up very oddly with our uh, episode that we just recorded on uh, tectonic plates. It does. I think the lesson here is anytime you have a social or cultural movement to go back and find how, how great your specific culture is or was, uh-huh. that's a yeah. that's a red flag for everybody else. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Uh, so the OED, it was basically the same thing. They were like, well, you've got your German book, but what's greater than the English language? Uh, let's do that for ourselves. We're going to make and an so, English word book. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was called. So the uh, the gentleman scholars, and that's in quotes, uh, from Britain got together to form the uh, Philological Society uh, in London in 1842 mm-hmm. uh, from the Greek phylos, uh, love, and logos word. So uh, philology is just the love of words. It's really very plain and kind of wonderful. Yeah. And it's a study of the language and the and the written language. And a lot of philologists will say, like, Greek and Latin are what we're concentrating in. But this at this time, there were people like, well, wait a minute. English seems to really be pretty important, too. I know it's not Latin or Greek, but maybe we should look forward and get down with this English dictionary. And they said, yes, in 1857. Uh, after that, uh, that's when it was. That's when the, the Grimms put out their first fascicle, mm-hmm. in fact, mm-hmm. was around the same time. They said they got a head start on us. But uh, I think we can catch up and do a great job as well. And, in fact, they did. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, word got out about this and everybody was like, hey, this is a great project. The the members of the Philological Society in England were um, kind of celebrated culturally for, for trying to do this thing, for documenting the English language and how great it was. So what they decided to do first was to find out all the words that weren't already in other dictionaries of English or any dictionary that contained English words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unregistered words is what they called them. And they were going to make a dictionary of unregistered words to basically complete everything. And there was a guy, Richard Chenevix Trench, R.C. Trench, who gave some lectures against this idea and essentially said, rather than patch an existing garment, let's make a brand new garment from whole yeah. cloth, and it's going to be the most beautiful garment anyone's ever seen. It's going a technicolor s- dream coat. Well, yeah, plus <laughs> sequin shoulder pads, um, the whole shebang. And to me, that's that's the height of amazing right. fashion. So um, he actually convinced the Philological Society to to veer a different way and to rather yeah. rather than just take you know the the words that hadn't been defined and define them and make that take on the entire English language going back to 1150 forward. And again, when you're doing this, so just think about going into the deep past and saying, okay, we're going to do all words from 1150 to 1850. That's daunting enough. But they were also signing up for essentially a never-ending unfinished work. Because as we've seen, every time they put in an addition, there's any number of new words that have come along or that they didn't ha- they didn't have before. Um, like it's an ongoing, never-ending process. They'll never be done with the OED, and I I suspect that probably drives some members of the OED staff completely mad. <laughs> Maybe, uh, and you also have to keep in mind that they did this without a publisher secured, uh, and in fact did work for about two decades without a publisher even. Yeah. So they were just working on what was then called the New English Dictionary, uh, was the, the I guess, the um, working title. 
And their first editor was a dude named uh, Herbert Coleridge. And if you're thinking, I wonder if he was, yes, he was. He was the grandson of Samuel Taylor. And there were several predictions in here. They were all wrong as to how big this project would be and how long it would take. Uh, but Herbert was the first one to be way off base and said, it'll be about 7,000 pages and we'll be done in a decade. <laughs> uh, not how it worked out. Uh, they started working. They started building this thing from, you know, from A forward. And they made a list of books, uh, like basically the, the English language literary canon, and said, all right, volunteers, uh, you all wrote in, said you had some time. So start reading. Read these books and look out for these words. And when you find them, put them on a slip, word for word, send them in to us. Uh, again, that's a, a four by six inch piece of paper. It was all very sort of uh, regimented. Right. And they said, please read these books. We like English literature uh, because the whole point of this is to talk about how great we were and how great our works and language is. Yeah. So are. that's why that's why they first were like, we're going to look through the, the great works of English language only because this is the highest use of these words. So these are the best examples. These are the quotations we want to use. And they were very narrow-minded in that sense. They were really, until the 20th century, they were very much centered on that. That's what they were going to use to derive their quotes from, because it would just demonstrate how great the English language was. Look at how these amazing English writers used it, right? So Herbert Coleridge died in 1861, I get the impression he was only working on it for a few years, but he was— because he died. Right, right. But, four years later. Yeah, so it was like four years, right? But yeah. he really threw himself into it, so much so that he apparently, on his deathbed, he had um, definitions, like slips, uh, scattered about, like on, his, on the quilt of his deathbed. He died working, yeah. and he had uh, contracted tuberculosis. And when the doctor was like, this is not ever going to get better— it will get better, but you're going to be dead. That's how it's going to get better. Um, Herbert Coleridge was like, oh, I must start Sanskrit tomorrow, which is taken to mean that he had never learned Sanskrit. He was a um, polyglot. He studied all sorts of different languages, and he had never gotten to Sanskrit. Now that he realized he was going to die, he needed to start on it tomorrow. Yeah, ironically, dying of what was then known as consumption and later TB. So that's a, that's a new usage and a new entry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1879, we're skipping forward, uh, and like I said, this is 20 years after they started. This is when they finally found that publisher. At the time, they were known, another sense, as Clarendon, later to be known as da, 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 the Oxford University Press. And even though they didn't specifically call it the Oxford English Dictionary uh, until later, I believe the very first... Uh, publishing in 1928 uh, 28 was called a New English Dictionary on Historical Principles. And so we should mention that after Coleridge died, it, it just, the whole thing kind of like lost momentum. He was a real driving force as the first editor. But, uh, you know, a few, I think 20 or so years um, later, it started to pick up again. And it was thanks to a new editor named James Murray, who I believe was the third editor of all. And he took this ball and ran with it, and he is the person that you can point to as the the one who ultimately got the OED published. He was the yeah. he was the true driving force of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Murray was Scottish, uh, came from a 
just sort of a regular uh, working class, middle class background, was the son of a tailor. Apparently, his father was a very smart man and known for being a, a smart and a sober person. And James, as a child, was a prodigy, was a language prodigy. Right. Uh, lear- learned his ABCs before he was 18 months, uh, was uh, apparently reading and writing in Greek by seven, uh, left school at 14, was studying four languages, and eventually came to London to be the headmaster of a school there. And that is where, in London, he joined up with the Philological Society. And uh, like you said, he was he was the guy. He was also the guy who had another 10-year uh, completion prediction. He said, this will take 10 years from now. Oh, yeah? And after five years of that 10-year prediction, uh, they had A through Ant. No. Yes. Wow. I would just see that and be like, well, I quit. He's like, a lot of that was on boarding, you understand? <laughs> Jeez, man, that's crazy. Yeah. But it also goes to show how little they actually had gotten done, apparently, under Coleridge's command. Yeah, everyone was just, they wanted jokes about uh, Grandpa. <laughs> You're like, come on, tell me, what was Sammy really like? So, um, the one thing that you said, I think, from the start was uh, that this was a, a, a crowdsourced project. Yeah. And it's not like the OED makes a secret about this. They're very... Um, um, deferential to the volunteers that have worked for them over the years because they mm-hmm. just could not have done this without them. It was just too big of a of an undertaking to for just a small group of people to, to have done by themselves. Um, and there were a lot of different people. There's a book out there called um, The Dictionary People. Um, right? What's it about? <laughs> Isn't that what it's called? I don't know. Oh, uh, where is it? Yep, The Dictionary People. I think it's fairly new, and the author um, had worked at the OED, and before she left, um, she had gotten from the archive, she had come across James Murray's um, address book, and it was pretty thick because it had the names and addresses of all a lot of the volunteer correspondents um, that were working, contributing um, uh, quotations to the dictionary, and so she decided to write a book tracking down who these people were. And that's what she came up with, this book called The Dictionary People. And she found some pretty interesting stuff. For example, about one in six, by her estimate, um, were women, in- uh-huh. including James Murray's wife and daughters. Uh, he drafted them and, and got a lot of support and help from them. Apparently, the editing the OED did not pay much, uh, but he had dedicated his life essentially to it, and his family supported yeah. him in that, which is pretty great. Um, and then there are um, a lot of other women contributed too, right? Yeah. Uh, the daughter of Karl Marx, Eleanor Marx, contributed mm-hmm. uh, and it was, it was apparently fired by Murray uh, for not doing the assignment properly, not sticking to the assignment. Uh, and by the way, Sarah Ogilvie is who wrote The Dictionary People. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. Uh, I'd like to check that out. I bet it's a good book. Yeah. Um, another writer that uh, Allison found from this book to highlight um, his name Marganita Lasky, uh, who was alive from 1915 to 1988, uh, Marganita contributed 13,000 quotes to 20th century supplements. Uh, and Mar- Marganita was a, a critic and a journalist and a novelist and kind of made the rounds on TV shows and stuff back in the day, uh, starting in the, the late 50s and into the 60s. And, um, you know, when people are volunteering like this, they can sort of like guide their, like, have their own path forward and how they want to tackle the project almost and who they want to highlight or words they want to highlight. 
And at some point, Marguerite Lasky got into sort of away from the highbrow thing and said, I want to start, you know, looking at domestic manuals and all these old ancient cookbooks and, you know, modern newspapers and famous diaries and just a really unique approach to come up with some of those 13,000 entries. Yeah. And that was a that was a real um, change. Remember, I said that they had um, really kind of had their blinders on just looking for, you know, the, the pinnacle of English literature for quotations. Under yeah. James Murray, he was like, no, we're going to um, not only look for new sources, we're also going to include slang. Um, we're going to include like vulgar um, words like uh-huh. we're, we're like if it's Knickers. an English word, we're going to include it because we're documenting the entire English language. So that was a huge um, sea change for the direction of the dictionary. And apparently he was under a tremendous amount of pressure to not um, to not go that way, to kind of stick with the original plan. And he said, no, he said yeah. nine. Uh, no, he said no. Oh, okay. uh, I mentioned knickers. Is that underwear? That's what knickers are, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought so. As soon as I said it, I was like, wait a minute. Did I say the wrong word? You were thinking of Fanny. <laughs> and what's a knickerbocker? A knickerbocker is a, think, I think it's the short pants that were like kind of cinched at the knee that you think of with like uh, little newsboys. So the New York Knicks named after the knickerbockers, that's what they wore? I, I don't know if they did or not. No, they were that's... named after the knickerbocker, um, like the story club that Washington Irving was a member of. Oh, really? Are you making all this up? No, I'm pretty sure that's oh, correct. Okay. I sometimes get things wrong. Yeah. But I th- well, this is off the dome, so think we'll, I'm right. we'll look it up. Okay. So back to Murray. He's working with his wife and 11 kids at his house mainly. And not only at his house, but mainly in, in his little uh, shed that he had built behind uh, the house in the garden called the Scriptorium. <laughs> and they worked on it here. He, once they got A through Ant in 1884, he was like, we need some help here. So they hired a second editor uh, named Henry Bradley. And then uh, not too long after that, added two more co-editors. So you essentially had a team of four uh, editors at that point that were working with teams and teams of people. So a lot of people working. um, Murray at his scriptorium uh, there at home, but then he moved to Oxford and built another larger scriptorium there behind his house and things were getting so busy, the local post uh, put a P.O. box uh, right there by his little front driveway, by his sidewalk. And it's still there. Yeah. If you look it up, this beautiful red P.O. box with a little placard saying that, you know, uh, Murray lived here. And this was this, the post to gather these slips that helped create the OED. I saw in actually Atlas Obscura that the placard doesn't say that. It just says that the guy who created the OED lived here. And they just walk right past the the post office box that's literally in front of the placard. They don't even mention it. The most amazing part of the story. It's one of the <laughs> it's one of the greatest, grossest government oversights in history. <laughs> so thousands of people contributing at this point. Uh, Murray is still beating the drum and like writing open letters to newspapers and stuff saying, hey, we we're still doing this. We, you know, trying to keep that fire going. Mm-hmm. Uh, And people, it wasn't just people in England, people from all over the world were contributing. Uh, And I think when they finally, they had so many slips, because, you know, they're filing these as they get them alphabetically, they're slotting them in, and they have these lexicographers working around the clock as well. 
uh, when they finally put out the first supplement in 1933, they still had 140,000 slips left over. That's <laughs> so nuts. Again, I would have been like, well, I quit. Yeah. <laughs> it's just too daunting. I can barely talk about this stuff. Yeah, I think 33, that's the first year they officially called it the OED. Okay. That, but everyone was kind of calling it that anyway. Were they really? Yeah. Okay, crazy. So they kind of went with the the change. The English language changed the name of the dictionary for them. Yeah, because whatever that long thing, I uh, a new English dictionary on historical principles, mm-hmm. uh, it was the printed by the Oxford English uh, Press. So everyone was just calling it that anyway. So yeah, I, I guess it was. A sense. Plus, OED sounds better than the NED, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, do you want to take another break and come back and talk about arguably the most interesting contributor of all? Sure. Okay. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. So Murray dies of pleurisy in 1915. Uh, Did not see the first uh, final edition put out, which is very sad. 
Uh, that would be, what, uh, 13 years later, mm -hmm. but did put out most of the fascicles by that point. Just wasn't compiled into the to one edition. Uh, different people, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, worked for a year on this in 1919. Mm -hmm. Lots of volunteers, but as you promised, oh, and Murray was also knighted in 1908. I didn't for know his that. Troubles. Wow. Yeah, apparently knighted, but still a bit of an outsider in the, the hoity-toity Oxford uh you know, literati. Yeah. Uh, always felt like an outsider and wasn't even given an honorary degree until like the year before he died or something. Yeah. And when he walked across the stage, what he didn't realize is that one of the faculty had taped a kick me sign to his back. So he didn't, he never understood why the audience was laughing when he grabbed his honorary yeah. degree. It was very sad. He never got it. Uh, so you promised to talk of the most interesting, uh, perhaps most celebrated volunteer, and that is one Dr. William Chester Minor. Uh, if you've seen the movie or read the book, The Professor and the Madman, uh, the book was by Simon Winchester, and the book starred Mel Gibson as Murray and Sean Penn as the quote-unquote madman, Chester Minor. Uh, I have not seen it. Apparently, it's not very good, and Mel Gibson <laughs> and the director tried to, uh, you know, they didn't support the movie in the press, and they tried to get their... I don't know if it, it get their name removed, but they basically disowned it. Really? I thought Mel Gibson was the one whose movie it was, whose idea. Well, it was his production company, yeah, but he, he apparently uh, he took him to court because he didn't get final cut, like they said, uh, and he didn't get to shoot for a week in Oxford like he wanted to, and he's basically like, this thing is garbage because <laughs> you didn't let me do what I wanted to, yeah. and so I'm not supporting it. That's, and Sean Penn just went, what? That stinks uh, because the, apparently the book was just amazing, The Professor and the Madman. I know, and it's such a great story. But I, I heard other people defend it and say, you know, it was pretty good. I had great acting, and, like, he he just, you know, got his uh, knickers in a, in a wad. <laughs> nice. So um, we're, the, the Madman uh, is Dr. William Chester Minor, you said, right? That's yeah. who the reference is. And um, the reason that they call him the madman is because at the time he was diagnosed with either dementia praecox or paranoid schizophrenia. And today we would call either of those just plain old schizophrenia spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the uh, mid-19th century, and Dr. Minor um, was suffering from this at a time when they did not understand what they were dealing with. Yeah. They just knew that this guy was pretty bad off and needed care, essentially, for the rest of his life. Um, he had started out as a, a military doctor, I believe. He graduated from Yale Medical School and entered the Civil War uh, as a military doctor pretty much right off the bat. Um, and uh, there's some stories about when his symptoms began. Allegedly, mm -hmm. it was from things he was exposed to in, during his time in the Civil War. Uh, one is uh, there's a story that he supposedly had to brand a deserter, an Irish deserter from um, the Union uh, with a D on his face. And that having to do that to that poor man just made him snap, essentially, or brought his symptoms on is a different way to say it. Or he was involved in the Battle of the Wilderness um, in outside of Spotsylvania, um, Virginia. Either way, we don't know. We just know that, yes, this man definitely had schizophrenia. We don't know how it came on, or if there was even any trigger, but we just kind of join him around the the time after the Civil War when he's still in the Army, but he's really starting to show symptoms. Yeah, and also, by the way, this is how we knew that Allison really has the goods as a, a researcher and writer, because Allison was like, hey, be careful with this stuff, because 
you know, there are a lot of stories out there and just don't don't buy up everything you're reading here. Right. That's she, music to our ears. She also told us how to um, pronounce Ziziva. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. The first writer to ever include pronunciation. It's nice. Uh, so, um, like you said, uh, an army doctor, an army surgeon um, working at the U.S. General Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut, also a flute player, apparently a very ambitious guy. Mm-hmm. And because of, uh, you know, kind of how uh, his schizophrenia played out were delusions of persecution, uh, a lot of delusions of being uh, attacked sexually. And, um, you know, I think that speaks for itself. Uh, They got pretty bad. And he apparently would wander red light districts of places where he lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said this is because of his disorder. Uh, He was sent to an asylum in Washington while he was still in the Army, uh, although he would get his discharge in 1870. Uh, While he was still there, uh, he thought he could get better if he went to the UK and get treatment there. And so in 1872 in London, uh, he found himself in the waking from a delusion that he was being uh, attacked, I think sexually attacked, by an Irish Republican Mm -hmm. and got up from bed and ran out to the street like guns blazing, uh, thinking he was shooting at his uh, tormentor. And killed a an innocent man, a brewery worker named George Merritt, who was on his way to work that early morning. Yes. So that was enough for the British government. He'd already been discharged from the army. I don't know if you said it or not. By the time he made it to the UK, and in the UK, the the, the authorities were like, "Okay, we're going to introduce you to one of our asylums called Broadmoor." And in Broadmoor, this is the 19th century. You did not want to be in an asylum of any sort in the 19th century. They were horrible, terrible places where humans were treated like about as bad as humans can be treated. Um, And yet, either he was charming or wealthy enough or a combination of both, he was able to play his flute, he was able to wear his own clothes, go on walks, and very um, importantly, he was able to bring his personal library of very rare books from the 17th and 18th century um, with him, and they actually gave him another cell to serve as his yeah. personal library, essentially. And I'll bet Sean Penn playing that flute is something to see. I mean, that above anything else is why I want to see that movie. <laughs> it's like in uh, Anchorman; he pulls it from his sleeve, and yeah, it's very fake. Hey, Aqualung! Oh no, not again! Yep, it just happened. Uh, he stayed in touch. This is kind of interesting uh, here that he did stay in touch with the wife, the widow of the man that he killed. And uh, she brought him books even, uh, which is amazing and kind of a nice ending to that story. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he did her a favor. Maybe he was a bad guy. No, uh, no apparently he wasn't. He was a... I was joking. Oh, yeah. well, he apparently contacted her and apologized, made some sort of restitution. I, I took that to mean like gave her some money. But she accepted his apology. She didn't have to do that. So I think it says a lot about both of them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when it came to the OED, he really poured himself into this as, a, as an avid reader and had all those rare books, like you said, mm-hmm. but didn't do the thing that they said, which was, hey, read these books and look for these words. He said, nope, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, read a book at a time, and I'm going to start, I guess it says with one letter, I guess he started with the letter A and just started looking through all the books 
for all the letter A's and then again for the letter B's and so on and so on. Yeah. And it was a fruitful way to search for quotations using specific words because I think within just a couple of years, he had generated and sent in between five and 6,000 slips of quotations to uh, James Murray. And as the years went on, they, no one seems to know how many he sent in, but he, um, it, it, I mean, tens and tens of thousands of slips came directly from uh, Dr. Minor during his time in Broadmoor. Yeah, they eventually met in person. I mean, this was a, a relationship that spanned a couple of decades. Yeah. H- hundreds of quotes a week, and they met in 1891. Uh, finally, uh, apparently the superintendent of the asylum uh, had both men at his house, and they met a few more times after that. Uh, I watched the trailer of the movie today, and uh, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but it seems like they'd met here and there mm. over the years. And in the book, it was like, you know, Mel Gibson doing a pretty bad Scottish accent, okay. saying like, you and I are partners. <laughs> you complete me. <laughs> it was kind of like that. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm not really sure if that was... Uh, the real case in real life. Well, so apparently, the from what I saw, James Murray considered it, um, just as a decent human being, he yeah. needed to go support Dr. Minor. Whether Dr. Minor was contributing or not, I think it helped that Dr. Minor was contributing, but uh-huh. it, they, they did have some sort of friendship or relationship. It, it went beyond just, you know, the editor and the contributor kind of thing. Um, All right. Well, maybe it was then. And supposedly, Dr. Um, Minor kept, like, finding excuses anytime James uh, Murray was like, well, let's meet. I, You know, I'm, I'm just across, like, the, the city. Let's meet for lunch or something. And Dr. Minor would be like, I can't. You know, I broke my foot or my sister's coming to visit, whatever. And then finally, I'm not sure how he finally found out. Either Dr. Minor admitted to it or James Murray found out somehow but he finally did find out that he was institutionalized, and then he started to go visit him. Oh, okay. Pretty neat. And then he yeah. saw him off um, after Dr. Minor was uh, released from Broadmoor so he could go back to be institutionalized in America. It was clear that he wasn't going to be around too many more years. Um, James Murray saw him off at the docks and gave him six unpublished volumes of the first edition that hadn't come out yet. Yeah, he had a very sad end uh, to a sad life. Uh, he had those delusions of being sexually violated. Uh, and in December 1902, he tied a tourniquet around his penis and he cut it off in what he called uh, in the interest of morality. Because what he believed is that he had delusions that he was being taken out of the asylum for years and years at night uh, and forced to have sex with uh, women. Uh, all around, you know, the asylum and, and in town. And so he cut his penis off. And after that, things uh, really just weren't the same for him. Uh, it seems like things went pretty downhill pretty quickly. Um, although he, he died in 1920. So that was, you know, another 18 years of suffering. Yeah. As far as um, his contributions, that w- really went downhill after that. Man. Yeah. Very sad, but super, super interesting story. And Great job, Allison. This was really, really cool. Yeah, thanks a lot, Allison. This was great. Great start. Welcome to the team. Uh, and what, Chuck, since I said welcome to the team, do you think it's time for listener mail? I think so. Okay. I'm going to call this cost of goods. Uh, in that episode, what episode was it where you're talking about the cost of goods? 
I think the Harlem Globetrotters is where it originally yeah. came from. Yeah, like why is it so expensive to go to NBA game these days or get a meal or whatever? Mm-hmm. We had a lot of people that write in, so I don't think we even settled on a, a, a final um, point. Yeah, I'm still looking around. There were a few different theories. Mm-hmm. But this one from Matt, I'm going to read. Uh, hey, guys, I have a partial explanation for the question, why does it cost so much more for a nice meal than it used to, even adjusting for inflation? Uh, Baumol, B-A-U-M-O-L, Baumol's cost disease might help explain this. It refers to the rising costs associated with service or labor-intensive industries over time, despite no corresponding increase in productivity. So imagine a restaurant in the 1950s. You have a server take your order, chef cooks the food, someone else uh, cleans up after you're done. Fast forward to today, despite all the technological advances, you still need that server to take the order, you still need the chef, you still need the staff to clean. Mm -hmm. Uh, The humans have not been replaced by machines or software in a lot of these cases. Uh, You can't speed up the chef uh, the way you can double the speed of a factory machine without sacrificing quality. So if you own a restaurant, you still need roughly the same number of workers that you've had uh, that you needed in the 50s, roughly. Yet wages for the staff have gone up over the years. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, the restaurant has to pay its staff more over time without getting more meals per worker. So what do you do? You pass it on to the customers. Uh, by the way, this also explains why stuff like health insurance and child care have also gotten way more expensive relative to other stuff. <laughs> you still need the same number of daycare workers per kid and nurses per patient that you did in past decades. Uh, this was a good one, Matt. We got some other ideas, and I imagine it's kind of all these things probably, but Baumol's cost disease is a great explanation, and that is from Matt Farmer. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. That was a good one. It's uh, w- The whole thing's brewing. I don't know what it's going to turn into, but that'll definitely be part of it for sure. Hmm, perhaps a Josh Clark solo 10-part series, The Cost of Goods with Josh Clark. I don't think so. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to make you do it with me. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so uh, that was from Matt, right? Yeah, Matt Farmer. Matt Farmer, thank you very much for that. And if you want to be like Matt Farmer and show off your braininess and try to answer a burning question we have, we love that kind of thing. You can send it to us via email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Childproofing people's homes is hard. 
but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes.